Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Greetings, and welcome to Bloomberg Government's podcast, Suspending the Rules. On Friday, President Donald Trump signed a two-week continuing resolution that pushes off the deadline to fund the federal government until December 21st. Last week, we talked about the debates that are holding up a spending deal. Today, we're discussing the slate of items the House is scheduled to consider this week, as well as one of the non-spending items that could ride on a year-end spending package. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Adam Shank. In the second segment, we'll get to some of the 25 or so non-controversial bills that the House is slated to consider this week under this podcast's namesake, Suspension of the Rules. First, though, autonomous vehicles. One bill that could hitch a ride on a spending deal is a compromise bill between the House and Senate to establish a framework for federal oversight of self-driving cars. That's what we'll be focusing on in this segment. Bloomberg government's transportation and policy reporter Sean Courtney and legislative analyst Sarah Babbage have been following the bill, and they join us now. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the substance of the deal, Sean, let's talk about the road that got us here. The draft legislation you were first to report on is a combination of House and Senate bills. Where is the state of play right now? So uh, last Monday, we got new draft language and a staff report on a new compromise version of the Senate's self-driving car bill. That came out after the trial lawyers said that they would back a section of that bill that dealt with preemption and arbitration. And so this was this was a big deal at the time. There was a lot of forward momentum, it felt like, and people were starting to try and work through some of the other differences that they had with the legislation, trying to figure out if the House would get on board and if they could get enough Democrats to support it. But then on Friday, Friday, the trial lawyers were back with more breaking news in which they said that they didn't support the overall bill. There were changes to other sections that they were concerned might affect consumers and privacy, and they wanted to see more changes. And so that's sort of where we are right now, and we're waiting to see what that means for future negotiations, if that was the death knell or if there's still life in this piece of legislation. So what's actually in the bill then? If the if the trial lawyers were, did they solve the preemption part of it before they, they started to pull their support from these other parts? So yeah, they, they were mostly negotiating on just a section of the bill, section three, and they had come to the point where they felt that they... It wasn't that they were fully on board with it. It wasn't perfect for them, but it was acceptable. And they felt it left open doors that in the future they could try and sue uh, and, and, and get changes. And section three is what I'm sorry, section, section three deals with uh, arbitration and preemption. And so the arbitration issue is that they wanted people to be able to sue and not be put into forced arbitration. And they wanted to be able to, if you know a loved one was at some point in the future killed and there was a self-driving vehicle involved, that you wouldn't be forced to go into arbitration and that you could actually take it to court and that would open up other means for them to to seek redress. Let's get into the meat of the rest of the bill, which kind of divides the future between a near-term interim process and a longer-term safety framework to govern autonomous vehicles. Sarah, tell us a little bit about that. Right. So the preemption element of the bill that Sean has been discussing relates to how the bill would designate the federal government as the lead on regulating the design and performance of autonomous vehicles, meaning that state and local governments would not be allowed to regulate those things. 
things, although they would continue to regulate things like traffic safety, driver licensing, auto dealerships. The measure sets up a framework for the federal government to, in the short term, exempt autonomous vehicles for sale and for testing as well, so exempting them from current safety standards. And then a longer term process where the federal government would go through all of its regulations for vehicles and figure out which don't apply or need to be modified for self-driving cars, as well as process for it to set brand new rules for autonomous vehicles. And in the near term, though, the exemptions would, companies would essentially apply for those, right? Right. They'd apply for them and the authority for exemptions would end after 10 years. So it's assumed that within that 10 year period, the federal government would be able to modify its existing rules and set new regulations as well. So what happens if the bill is in pass this year? We've talked about how the opposition sort of fell away and then came back. So what happens for autonomous vehicles if Congress does nothing? It's possible that they could try and write another bill next year or take pieces of this and write new legislation. But the understanding Understanding I have from talking to some very tired staff members who have been working on this for a long time and to industry folks is that maybe it's not really worth it and they'll just carry on sort of without without any kind of federal framework and so they'll keep operating within the kind of gray space they have been operating in. You know, Waymo just launched a self-driving car service in Arizona. Uh, GM has uh, said that they plan to start commercial service in uh, 2019 and so I think you'll start seeing some companies rolling out self-driving cars and eventually we'll have to get some sort of framework in place but it might just be a more gradual process where the federal government is in charge and 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 states can kind of set their own roles right now Sarah, what else in this bill catches your eye? One thing that I thought was really interesting was that there was debate initially about whether to include trucks as well as cars in this, and Congress decided ultimately that they just couldn't tackle those two things together because dealing with trucks brings in a whole other set of labor issues, and you think of all of the tens of thousands of people who work as truckers around the country and delivery drivers even. So it'll be interesting to see whether Congress uh, ever tries to tackle that sort of regulation. I also was interested to see the measures in the bills on privacy because autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. So the measure would bar companies from collecting consumers' data without their permission, but some lawmakers seem to still be concerned. And then finally, the measure requires manufacturers to have cybersecurity plans since, of course, these vehicles will be connected to the internet and could be subject to hacking, which is a kind of scary thought. Yeah, just a little bit. So I think with that, thanks, Sarah and Sean. Listeners, if you haven't been reading their coverage, tracking these bills since last year, you've been missing out. So find all of it at BGov.com. We'll be back in just a moment to look at some of the House's items for this week. Among the more than two dozen bills the House is scheduled to take up this week are a handful of health-related measures. These are all largely non-controversial bills that will probably pass with bipartisan support. Returning to the show now to help us break them down are BGov legislative analyst Daniel Parnas and senior health policy reporter Alex Ruoff. Welcome back. Thanks. One of these bills, the IMPROVE Act, includes provisions to address what proponents say are drugs that are improperly classified as name brand rather than generic. Those misclassifications can result in drug companies paying lower rebates to the Medicaid program and increasing the cost of drugs. What's the issue there and what's the bill going to do to address it? So in order to participate in Medicaid, 
drug companies have to agree to give rebates back to the states and the federal government, which helps offset the costs of those drugs. There were some concerns that, as you mentioned, that some companies were misclassifying their drugs and resulting in lost rebates to the Medicaid programs. There was actually the uh, inspector general of HHS found that about 3% of drugs in 2016 were potentially misclassified, and they looked at about 10 of the most expensive drugs and said that that perhaps lost about $1.3 billion in rebates to the program. So this is something that the bill seeks to address by giving HHS more authority to penalize these companies uh, if that happens. What's next if the House does pass this bill this week? Well, this actually does have some pretty influential benefactors in the Senate. This first came up with Ron Wyden of Oregon and Chuck Grassley of Iowa. You know, these two are going to head the finance committee next year. This is kind of their opening salvo in the pharmacy, pharmaceutical drug pricing issues. These two really want to take it on next year. And I think this is something, I mean, at least Ron Wyden has said he wants to get done this year. It's relatively non-controversial. I think improving Medicaid is something that's pretty bipartisan. It's an easy sell. I would say this is kind of a relatively small thing that might get tucked into something like the spending bill. These are the sort of vehicles you can see them put up and, you know, an easy win for these two who I guess want to kind of stir their influence pretty early. So you you talked about this sort of being like a smaller, easier kind of kind of thing to get through. How does this play into the larger debate over drug pricing? I would say this is the kind of thing lawmakers love to do. It's a relatively small fix. I realize we we just mentioned maybe they save a billion dollars. I think the real aspects on this were just a few million. There's a lot of conversation about whether or not the agency would use this new authority, would, would really hammer at them. But, you know, it shows it might just be an opportunity for lawmakers to show they're being serious about this. They want to take this on next year. And it's not something they're going to shy away from pretty easily. So I would say this would be a good kind of down payment on what I think a lot of, you know, what Congress might be turning to next year, which is- Seems like the kind of thing that you could get through a divided Congress, for instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think when we, most of the debate around drug pricing focuses on things like Medicare negotiation, you know, whether Medicare should be negotiating these prices, whether or not, you know, we should be hammering out drug makers. And I think a lot of that stuff that's really a no-go or something that would be a huge lift for Congress. But things like this is the kind of stuff lawmakers really can pull off. Small bits, things that really attack public financing of drug pricing, which is, I think, where Congress's bailiwick really stands. It's interesting that you mentioned sort of the enforcement authorities. HHS currently does have some authority to to deal with this issue, but they haven't used it a lot um, for various reasons. Some reports were pointing out that they have this nuclear option where they can kick a company out of the program, but that would affect access for beneficiaries to these drugs, so they haven't really taken those steps. And so this is sort of an incremental thing where they could have more authority to levy penalties. They could also, right now, if there's a misclassification, it seems they don't really have the authority to force the company or themselves to just reclassify it to fix the problem. And it would also allow them to recoup those payments that have potentially been misclassified and, and not made to the to the fullest extent. So like with, with many of these health bills, it's kind of a strange smattering of smaller measures put together into a larger bill. This bill has some other interesting provisions. Do you guys want to talk about some of those? Sure. I mean, one to point out is that there is an effort to create an additional benefit under Medicaid where states could essentially provide care to children through what's called health homes, where you're essentially just coordinating all of their medical care through a designated provider team. And the bill would increase Medicaid payments for states that do select this option. So that's one thing in there. There's another program that they're extending for long-term care when beneficiaries move back to their homes or communities. And then there's a couple other things that perhaps would pay for those additional 
additional Medicaid payments. I think what Danielle is enjoyingly not referring to is part of this bill is paid for essentially by restricting what are known as, I believe they're called vacuum erection systems. Uh, This one is called penis pumps uh, or prosthetic penile implants. This kind of it's part, it's part of a pay-for system for this, but it's kind of the longest in the line of how lawmakers, particularly how conservatives are shaping public health insurance programs. You know, this really came up a few years ago right. when they said... I was going to say this isn't the first time that they've tackled this issue. Oh, yeah. Medicare does not pay uh, for what I believe Steve King enjoyingly referred to as Grandpa's Viagra. They don't like the idea of public... I mean, this is a big question about what should a public health insurance program be paying for? It can't, you know, erectile dysfunction, AIDS... Correction aids are something they really do not want Medicare, Medicaid paying for. It is something that's, you know, if you make these kind of cuts to the programs, very few people are going to come after you on it. It's actually a little bit hard to, you know, to stand behind and say, look, oh, you definitely need to pay for this. But you could talk to urologist groups that talk about the, you know, social needs for this or what it means to be on Medicaid and to have access to a full range of health care. But yeah, I mean, it's an inter- it's an interesting cut to make and one that I think is going to have probably very little discussion among lawmakers. But it's definitely a way that this is a really part and parcel of how lawmakers shape public health insurance programs and, you know, the way the so our social influences affect public insurance. Yeah. And there's actually another provision in there dealing with payments under Medicare for manual wheelchairs. So, you know, to your point that this is sort of how they review items and services under these public health programs. This one happens to be a little more different than you would normally expect. So thanks for tackling that. The Improve Act isn't the only health care bill on the scale schedule this week. Danielle, what else is on the docket? Sure. There are a couple of other health research programs that would be authorized this week um, under various bills. One has to do with grant programs to address sickle cell disease and other blood disorders. There's a bill that would reauthorize research and education programs related to premature births. And then also an effort to increase data collection and research regarding maternal mortality. So those are all separate bills that the House is scheduled to consider this week. And some of those the Senate has already passed, and so this would be clearing them for the president. Correct. The sickle cell disease bill and the preterm birth uh, research bill would both be essentially cleared for the president's signature if passed by the House this week. And again, these are uh, relatively non-controversial, so they probably will have a lot of bipartisan support. The maternal mortality measure, it's a House bill and it hasn't been considered on the Senate floor yet, but the Senate Help Committee approved a very similar bill earlier this year. So that's potentially something that they could try to clear also before the end of the year. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Alex. Again, find all of their health care coverage on Bloomberg Government. Uh, That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another edition of Suspending the Rules. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com. <laughs>